What is up, guys? This is Stan R. Mitchell, and this is the July 29th edition of The View from the Front. Hope everyone's doing great. Hope you've had a great week, and I hope you have uh, some big plans for the weekend. If you are one of the new ones who haven't heard us before, every Tuesday and Friday, I discuss military and defense news, and I throw in a little bit of history, motivation, and wisdom, and I do all of this from a moderate perspective. The uh, Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by a day unless you're a paid subscriber. That gives you a little bit of an incentive, but if you don't want to throw five bucks in a month, you get it the next day. It's just a 24-hour delay, and the Friday posts are free and released to everyone at the same time. We've got a ton to cover, but I did want to make one small administrative note. In the past, I've done both the um, podcast and I did you know, the newsletter and took my time with the newsletter and tried to make it you know, nice and readable. And uh, it's just gotten to where I don't have time to do both, quite frankly. And um, so from this point on, there'll be the podcast and there will be the newsletter will basically just be source notes where if I mention a video or a news item, you can go there and, um, you know, actually see the source information and dig a little deeper if you want. So I did want to explain that. I apologize that I can't do both, but, you know, the reality is I am working a full-time job and trying to do this on the side while also being a good husband and uh, stepdad. So I apologize. I can't do both, but um, we'll do what we can with what we got for now. So thanks again for everyone's support. And with that, let's just, uh, let's get right into it. I mentioned in the uh, Tuesday podcast that the Ukrainians have been using those uh, HIMARS, the uh, multiple launch rocket systems, to punch holes into a couple of bridges uh, that are behind Kherson, which is in the southeast of the country and a major provincial capital that Ukraine kind of has its eyes fixed on and is probably already in the middle of a counterattack on, at least they're positioning for it. Um, since Tuesday, um, they have hit those bridges again. And they did it in a really unique way. I put a video in the source notes, but it was almost like a straight line across one of them where they've uh, aimed the, the the rockets. And depending on where you look online, in a few places, the Ukrainians have said they didn't want to destroy the bridge, that they basically wanted to disable it so the Russians couldn't push forward reinforcements and or uh, retreat. They want to cut off a part of their military that's defending the city. But uh, you'll see that in a couple places, uh, depending on where you look online. But it's really neat how they've uh, knocked that bridge to the point to where it looks to me like, at least on one of them, you probably can't cross it. Uh, I had mentioned on the Tuesday podcast that at least one of them, according to one analyst, was down to one lane. So the Ukrainians are keeping up their uh, work on knocking those bridges, at least to the point where they're barely usable, if at all. And also on the source notes... Um, I've put up a map from uh, an analyst that shows exactly where those bridges are, what the water looks like, and a little bit better idea on what the terrain is. So, hey, visual aid if you're like me and you like to see a map. You can find those in the source notes. One other thing on Russia, actually it's one of many things I wanted to mention quickly about Russia. Um, there is an article in Defense One from uh, Britain's uh, MI6 chief, and uh, he talked about um, how Russia is about to run out of steam. But I think sometimes we see um, the Russian invasion and, and, and what they've, you know, the horrible costs they've, you know, managed to pull off as far as what they've managed to cost Ukraine to this point. And even though Ukraine has done a, just an incredible job defending itself, 
you know, none of us should kid ourselves. They've lost lots of uh, people. Their economy has been just absolutely cratered. And um, what Russia's done is, is, is horrific. But Britain's uh, MI6 chief makes a great point that it's easy to forget as we get stuck into the weeds on where Ukraine goes from from here and, you know, where NATO goes. But uh, he claimed uh, Russia had, you know, had an ep epic fail. Uh, and he reiterated something that we often forget, that Russia's invasion had three main goals, which was to, remo to remove Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. They obviously failed at that, although they did try, um, and they they had some shenanigans they did in the capital city, uh, some um, probably some of their uh, intelligence agencies. But at any rate, um, Ukraine protected that. They also defended a nearby uh, airport. But um, the second major objective was to capture Kiev, the capital city. Obviously, they failed at that, and um, you might remember the long highway that was getting bombed. Uh, but they got to the outskirts, but they were pushed back. They were overextended. They haven't even tried to capture Kiev since then. And then the final thing was that Russia's goal was to sow disunity within NATO, to basically get NATO to disagree within itself and to further weaken, if not kind of crumble or come apart. And um, obviously NATO has expanded since then. Um, so NATO is much stronger, much more unified. And so the big three goals, um, remove the president, capture the capital, and weaken NATO, absolutely failures on all three. And um, if anything, all three of those are stronger than they were. So I think it's easy for us to forget that. And just seeing that article on Defense One helped help me remember that despite the tragic cost um, from a from a 10,000 foot perspective, Russia has failed in every every regard of what its primary large goals were. Now, zooming back in, um, Away from the 10,000-foot perspective, back to the weeds, so to speak, there was an intelligence update from the United Kingdom, and they've done an amazing job of just keeping folks um, aware. Um, and it talked about the potential attack down to Kherson, the, the uh, provincial capital. And one little bullet really stuck out to me, which is that, um, I'll read part of it, Russia's 49th Army is stationed on the west bank of the Dnipro River and now looks highly vulnerable. Um, so I wanted to read that because it says it's, quote, now virtually cut off from the other occupied territories um, and talks about how the loss of Kherson would severely undermine Russia's attempts to paint the occupation as a success. So a lot of folks on Twitter, once they saw the little 49th Armor Army might be cut off, Anytime a military has an army, I mean, there's a large army, but a lot of times um, there are large units are set up as battalions, and battalions create regiments or brigades, and brigades create regiments and brigades create divisions, and then divisions sometimes create armies, so that you got like the third army or the second. Well, so this 49th Army, a lot of folks were wondering how large it was. Couldn't really find numbers on that, but just on an article from about five years ago, these were the units that were in the 49th Army. There was a headquarters. There was a motor rifle brigade, the 205th. There was the 34th separate motor rifle brigade. So there's another one of those. There's a first guards rocket brigade. There was an artillery brigade. There's a headquarters brigade, an anti-aircraft anti-aircraft rocket brigade. There's a material and support brigade. There's a, a separate Spetsnaz company. That's their special forces. 
There was an engineer sapper regiment. Those are the guys that set demolitions, blow up bridges, also uh, put out mines or clear mines. There was an NBC protection regiment. That's a NBC stands for nuclear biological chemical. There was an electric electronic warfare battalion. Um, so this 49th Army, now that, that info is from about five years ago, and obviously Russia is not going to put out how many troops are in this that could be cut off. But just from what I found online and the fact they're calling it the 49th Army, it sure seems to me like there is a lot of uh, units there, and uh, this is going to be just a horrific um, loss to Russia. If these guys get cut off and, and are either forced to retreat, or I'm sorry, uh, surrender, they can't retreat, but if they're forced to surrender, um, it's going to be, I don't really know how Putin will uh, spin that one. We've talked quite a bit um, past really few months, but definitely last few weeks about the various types of aid that the United States have been has been providing to Ukraine. And there was a little bit that came out about that since Tuesday. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, approved treating uh, wounded Ukrainian soldiers at a uh, U.S. military hospital in Germany. And uh, that was according to a memo obtained by CNN and uh, was confirmed by two different U.S. defense officials. Um, Zachary Cohen, who works for CNN, he tweeted about this. So I've got the link there, but that's huge. I'm sure this will be specialized surgeries. Um, it won't be a ton of folks that we'll be treating from what I can see, um, more like in the dozen or so at a time. But still, um, if these are, you know, really traumatic head wounds or life-threatening surgeries that can be done by um, probably, I don't want to say more skilled, but I'll just say that um, probably less overworked staff as far as medical teams and probably a little bit better equipment in Germany and certainly a safer environment. And it will also help reduce the uh, workload that I'm sure the uh, doctors in Ukraine are, are under, which I can't imagine the stress they've been under, say, the past um, three, four or five months since the invasion began. So that was um, another bit of aid that's new that we've just recently sort of announced or has, has been broken open by reporters. Um, one other thing is you'll continue to hear about um, us potentially providing aircraft that keeps coming up. And so uh, I've heard a little bit more about that since Tuesday. Keep your eyes up on that. Keep, I'm sorry, keep your eyes open on that. Um, I read a kind of counter argument that I've got a link to from a, um, a, a I, I almost hesitate to say naval officer, but he is a naval officer. I know he doesn't speak on behalf of the Department of Defense, but uh, I've, I've got his name there, Farvra Price. But he talks about that this may not be the easy win that everyone thinks if we were to send um, planes there. And he talks about something that a lot of us forget, which is this is not um, this is not something that's that's going to be like a short term effect. Um, he talks about the training, even if they're experienced pilots, it's going to take like six weeks minimum for basic flight qualification on U.S. planes. They'll have to learn the systems, the proficiency on how to use those. Um, there, he goes really into the weeds about you know what being a pilot is all about. These I've never been a pilot. I don't know this stuff. But you start to read all of it, and you realize that um, this, it's, it's going to take months and months for this to work, if, if it happens. But they are still talking about it, and I think this is one of those deals where, you know, if, when's the best time to plant a tree? Because... Obviously, they can't help Ukraine now, but maybe in, you know, three, six months, nine months, it might be nice 
for Ukraine to go ahead and have those planes. So I think there's some, you know, some debate about what to provide now, what the long-term plans are. But I continue to hear folks talk about it. And I even recently heard uh, Admiral James Stravitas talk about it. And I can't remember if that was in an interview with the Bulwark or in one of his interviews with Morning Joe in the morning on uh, MSNBC. But the fact he's still talking about it means that our military is definitely talking about it and um, that maybe some planning or, or some progress is being made on that issue. While we're discussing uh, Admiral Stavridis, a um, couple of things he said, um, there's been some talk about a, um, a deal with Turkey between Russia, Turkey, and the West about how to get the grain out. Um, he thinks that deal will actually probably happen. And one of the reasons he thinks that will happen is that, in his words, there was a, quote, a high probability, end quote, that if the deal doesn't happen, then the U.S., NATO, and the West is going to crack that blockade and escort those ships out. Uh, he said that in the interview with the Bulwark with uh, Charlie Sachs. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Um, I think the West is increasingly impatient. So I think it's uh, either the deal is going to happen or the uh, there's going to be other measures taken, as uh, Stavri just mentioned. Let's talk about one other high-level thing with the... Uh, Ukraine situation, and then I'll knock out a couple small things, and then we're going to move to China. So uh, uh, Patrick Fox, who's an analyst, um, he wrote a great article about um, if we remove ourselves from the kind of the the initial battlefields that everyone's studying and talking about, he makes the case that uh, now more than ever is the case that time to help Ukraine, and not just for Ukraine's sake, but for the West's sake, in that um, the more Russia is hurt, um, and crippled, so to speak, from their foolish and, and wrong invasion, the less they're going to be able to assist China. Uh, he, he's looking further into the future and our potential um, conflict with China, and he's, he's basically saying that Russia is going to be trouble for the West, and now more than ever, we should absolutely, um, since Russia has blundered with this invasion, we should make them pay <clears throat> We should make them pay, you know, badly, both in economic terms and also um, doing everything we can to really um, just break their military. Um, it's a great column. I've got it linked in the source notes. And if you're not following him on Twitter or his Substack, where he, he posts about things such as this, you definitely should follow him. Again, his name's Patrick Fox. One other thing on Russia is, uh, and I got to give credit to Eric Foltz for share, uh, sharing this. He's a veteran and analyst. Um, in Chechnya, there are uh, there was a new a news story in Yahoo News about um, Vladimir Putin could be getting a, a second war front as uh, Chechen forces who are opposed to the war in Ukraine are threatening to launch their own offensive. This was a story I read in detail, and it's hard to um, say for sure how big a deal this is or isn't. Um, it's the kind of thing that can start as like a really small fire and then absolutely just grow into something. Um, I don't think the support for Russian troops in Chechnya was high. When Russia invaded Chechnya, they really flattened the uh, capital. They they committed hor horrific war crimes there, and they basically beat them down over a period of years. But I don't think anyone—and they put in a kind of a front man that supports uh, Putin, but— uh, and, and uh, Chechnya, uh, Chechnya has sent some troops into Ukraine, but uh, this is one of those things that I actually think we ought to 
put in or bookmark because I kind of think it could be a big deal. Um, I think this might be the little bit of a spark where the Russian forces are overextended. And um, I, like I said, I don't think Russian rule is very popular there. And um, if if they were to start calling this a jihad and, and bring religion into it, I think uh, I think Putin may realize he's got a little bit more to worry about in Chechnya than he thought. So that's something that I'm mentioning in it now because uh, months and months from now it could be a big deal. Or maybe they find a way to, to crush this little bit of resistance before it starts to gain steam. Okay, two final things on Russia, and then we'll move on to China. Um, the first is that um, I'm sure if you've kept up with the news much, there was horrific footage that showed a Russian um, soldier. There's really no nice way to say this, but castrating a Ukrainian prisoner of war who had his hands tied behind his back. He was a prisoner. He had surrendered. It's horrific. Um, not something most people can watch or should watch. Um, but Again, the war crimes that uh, Russia continues to do, and they seem to think that if they do enough of these and publicize it, this was put out on uh, Russian media, um, I think it was Telegram, which I know isn't Russian, but it was, it got released there. But it, they're they're not even ashamed of these horrific things they're doing. But um, at any rate, they've put that video out, and I think they think that this will break the Ukrainians' will, but. Um, I think military history has shown, whether you're studying World War II or any other conflict, if soldiers know that if they were to surrender or be captured, they're going to be tortured, they will resist in a much more fierce way. This happened in so many conflicts I could talk about. Just World War, World War II is a good example, though. The German soldiers were much more likely to uh, surrender to American and Allied forces on the West Western Front than they were on the Eastern Front, where if they Germans surrendered to Russians, they knew that at best, assuming they weren't shot, they were going to get put on trains and sent back to Siberia or some other just horrific situation where they'd be barely fed and uh, half frozen to death. So no, no German soldier wanted to surrender to the Russians. And so you know, I don't think the Russians understand their history very well. If they think that this this kind of barbarism is going to cause Ukrainians to uh, surrender, I think it's the opposite effect. I think they won't they won't surrender as likely, and furthermore, it's infuriating the West, and it continues to fuel support to arm the Ukrainians against these absolute madmen. And that final thing on Russia, so. They have a very popular kind of 60-minute show that they constantly, it's well-watched. Um, they obviously have propaganda, but it's been very pro-invasion, very little criticism. If you saw the clips of it online, then you'd be like, I've absolutely seen that show v numerous times. Well, they've, they've covered the war extensively, and um, but lately an interesting thing happened, and that is they kind of stopped covering the war as much. And there's a clip I put the source notes to, but they're attacking trans people and, you know, uh, folks who are gay. So they're, they're kind of going that route. But it's interesting because um, it, it could be could be nothing, but it also could be the fact that I think the Russian people are growing tired of hearing about the war. There's not much to celebrate. If anything, the casualties are returning. They're hearing bad things about the soldiers who are there. And so I think Putin, who controls the media, essentially, they're pivoting away from talking about the war. And so they're going to talk about they're going to try to make fun of the West and 
you know, that they're, they're going to completely change the topic. But what I saw when I when I watched that clip is, you know, in my opinion, this their invasion is going to become like the forgotten war was for us, which is what we call the Korean War. And um, and it's pretty smart, actually, because one, it gets it out of the mind of the people, get them mad about something else. But also it might reduce some pressure on Putin because uh, if folks aren't thinking about the war, he might be able to negotiate a deal and possibly get out. Um, but probably not a good sign for Russia that suddenly there's nothing for them to celebrate or talk about on the news and that they've got to change the topic. So I did want to point that out. I thought that was kind of uh, significant. Okay, so we covered a lot on, on Russia. Let's move to China. Um, obviously, we've talked about House Speaker Pelosi visiting the pressure. Um, we talked about that a lot in the last episode. If you missed it, it's a great setup. Um, definitely listen to that if you haven't. But um, she's she is, uh, I guess, departed today or in the process of leaving. She has planned stops in Japan, Indonesia, uh, Singapore, and there's still no mention of Taiwan. But been lots of uh, discussion about whether she should or shouldn't visit. I predicted that, not that that was some big prediction, but um, it's definitely happened. Um, one other thing, President Biden has made a phone call. They've had a scheduled phone call with the leader of China, uh, Xi. Apparently that didn't go. Um, there was very little progress made. I don't think either side expected to make much progress. Um, Derek Grossman was talking about what might happen if Pelosi decides to visit. Um, and he named three different categories. Um, the first category he named as likely, and that the likely category options included military display near Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. Um, recall the ambassador back to China, uh, and possible economic punishment. He cited as escalating option um, that maybe the Chinese military literally shadows her aircraft. Um, she's probably going to be flying in a military aircraft. I've read several places. Uh, another op escalating option is that they cut off military to military talks with the U.S., which that would be dangerous because there's lots of uh, unsafe uh, aircraft and naval interactions that happen, and normally you want some kind of communication back and forth. And then the final group, he said, as far as unthinkable, is that they somehow target her aircraft. Um, they launch missiles over the island of Taiwan. Or maybe they even uh, put up a naval blockade. Um, he named those as unthinkable, and um, all of those, really, on all three lists, um, are both to me a little scary and, and you know, somewhat possible. It, it really just depends on, like we talked about on Tuesday, does China feel like it's at a point where it can really uh, stand strong without having to to bend at some point, or do they push this back some? And unfortunately, this is just one of those things we won't know until we know. While we're talking about what China may or may not do, uh, the Pentagon's senior official on uh, Indo-Pacific security, he said um, actually this week, just a couple of days ago, that these dangerous interactions that are happening between foreign ships and aircraft, that they're not accidents. In an article published in the U.S. Naval Institute, uh, and I've got the link on that in the source notes, in that article, he is quoted as saying that um, these acts of almost maritime bullying are uh, part of China's policy and that they're really um, worrisome and called them unsafe intercepts. Uh, he explained a couple where they'll actually get in the flight 
path or ship's path and basically make the ship or plane alter course. Um, he said that this is happening so much that um, it's happening dozens of times and that, you know, it could lead to a some type of escalation. And obviously the U.S. is committed to keeping um, international waters and airspace open, but China is growing from a regional power to a global power, a global power, and they're increasingly asserting themselves. So you can read the article. I've got that linked into the uh, source notes. But it, to me, it's just more proof that China is definitely feeling um, like it's ready for some type of, uh, you know, escalation to see how it measures up to the West and specifically the United States. We'll have to wrap up the news on China there. There was another item or two I wanted to get to, but as always, there's never enough time to do all the things I'd like to do. But um, we'll uh, we'll keep our eyes on the Pelosi trip and whether it happens and uh, how China reacts. So with that, let's move to some, uh, you know, motivation and wisdom. The first one comes from Sarah, who's, I was about to say good friend, but that's way, way overstating it probably. But she's been a friend of mine on Twitter for a while. And every now and then we tweet back and forth. And so, but she's always, uh, she's a school teacher. So we thank her for what she does. And um, I don't know how anyone has the patience to do that. But she shares, always sharing um, positive things and motivation. And she shared a great one that I wanted to share. And it's a quote from uh, Roald Dahl. And the quote is, I began to realize how important it was to be an enthusiast in life. If you are interested in something, no matter what it is, go at it full speed. Embrace it with both arms. Hug it. Love it. And above all, become passionate about it. Lukewarm is no good. And that was a fantastic quote. I think that applies to any profession. And then we will end with these from Success Minded. I've got them linked in the source notes, but they're a great follow if you're on Twitter. Here are several from them. The first one is, success is measured by the size of your belief. Think little goals and expect little achievements. Think big goals and win big success. thought that was a great one. Uh, here's another one. Make it happen. Shock everyone. Another good one. Uh, here's one. Um, keep on being you. Keep on doing those beautiful, impactful, honest things you do. Out here in this crazy world, we need more people like you. It's just kind of a good one that I thought was pretty strong. I think we all forget that we, the world needs us. Um, let's get just a couple more. Everything you do and every decision you make should be from a good place. You should always be striving to make the world a better place. And um, here's another one. Success doesn't just come. Most times it has to be forced. Um, and then just a couple more because these are all good. Hustle until your haters ask if you're hiring. thought that was pretty funny. Um, and then two more, and I promise we'll, we'll stop. Um, the first one is decide, commit, succeed. We all need to commit, do we not? So that was a good one. And then finally, um, learn to trust the journey even when you do not understand it. So that's it for this edition. As a reminder, you know, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. I firmly believe we need to pull this country together, and that starts with all of us. And um, we have to stop hating those on the other side of the aisle, and we have to stop rewarding the loudest and most angry voices on either side. I'm not exactly sure how we do this, but, you know, I think it starts with each of us, and it starts with all of us being kinder. Um, and, you know, as I always talk about Abraham Lincoln, we, we cannot, a house divided will not stand. So 
We all play a small role in this friction and division in our country, and we all can work hard to try to fix this. Um, so let's follow his example. And let's all remember, too, that Lincoln only had one year of schooling. He was self-educated. He learned through books. Um, he wasn't from some big Ivy League school, and um, he was one of the greatest presidents we had. So we all need to stay engaged even when the politics gets ugly. We need to study the issues when we're wrong. I recently was wrong on Twitter. had a couple people call me out on it. Pretty easy to do if you're wrong. Just admit you're wrong. It's not hard. If we all did that, I think the world would be a little bit better place. So, hey, guys, thanks a million for uh, listening. I hope you have a great weekend. Make sure you subscribe for free announcements for sure. The newsletter and the podcast is free. If you want it a day earlier, if you want to support what we're doing, if we can throw five bucks in the hat, that would be amazing, and I would really appreciate it. Um, don't forget, I've got lots of books to check out as well. You can also find a bio, uh, bio about me on the uh, newsletter. So at any rate, hey, thanks a lot, guys. Have a great weekend.